0: So this morning, I want to I give you a bit of a blueprint and what i just like to refer to as God's perfect plan for marriage. You know, God does have a plan for marriage, and I know marriage isn't for everybody. If you're single, you should serve God, love God, and, and do with God in your singleness. There's nothing wrong with being single. Uh, you'll never hear me say that you're not going to be complete unless you're married. That's just not true at all. That's not it. But I will say that if you are married, God does have a plan for your marriage. He did design it. It does represent something very deeply spiritual. It does mean something, and we must value that. We must give the credit to God where it's due, that there is a purpose in marriage. And it's not for your comfort. It's not for your blessing. It's not for your happiness, it's so that you will become more like Jesus, and together in that oneness, you will make a difference. You will raise holy children who will also raise holy children who will make a difference in this world. That, that's simply God's design. It's a, it's a simple plan. But I want to I help you today to realize that in God's plan for marriage, that there is something that he wants you to understand about you as a man or as a woman, as a wife or a husband, and how God uses those unique genders to become one and glorify himself through you. So I'm going to refer to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is a passage of scripture that many of you know. Many of you have heard it preached or taught in ways that I probably would not agree with, but that's really not my purpose or point today. Um, I want to do my best to give you an understanding of what God is saying in Ephesians 5. I want to take the blinders off of us. I want to take the swords out of your hands. I want you to stop using Ephesians 5 as a weapon against one another, and instead let it be a motivation for you to become what God has created you to be as a man, woman, husband, wife. So I've already been pretty heavy, so let me lighten it up. You know, what, love is an interesting thing, isn't it? I think we all kind of have a common belief in what love is, but I don't think we really get it. I think we make it too complicated sometimes. And you know what? I found that, that love is is actually a pretty simple thing. So I think that there, there was a, a group of professional counselors that I think had the same kind of a thought, idea, that love probably isn't as complex or complicated as we adults often make it. So I wonder what kids would say about love. And so they, this group of professionals got together and they got a group of children, and they asked them that question, what does love mean? And the answers that they got, in my mind, in my opinion, are so profound, so philosophically deep, so spiritual, that I can't help but share some of them with you. So here's the first one. Rebecca, eight years old, said this in answer to the question, what does love mean? She said, when my grandmother got arthritis, She couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even after his hands got arthritis too. (laughs) She said, that's love. Billy, age four, said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know your name is safe in their mouth. I'm telling you what, that, that for a four-year-old, that is mind-boggling to me. And may it be that your spouse and your children's names are always safe in your mouth. And you're going to have to expand that. I mean, I'm not talking about just saying it sweetly. I'm talking about that they are safe in your heart because of the way you talk to them. Carl, age five, said... Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> I, I do love that one, you know? And yeah, I'll leave it at that, all right? Yeah. Young people, are you, any young people here today? Yeah, you know, that, that's all you're allowed to do, okay? Okay, get some cologne and perfume, smell each other, no problem. Bobby, age five, said, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Wow, also profound. Noel, age seven, said, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and he wears it every day. <laughs> a, I can relate to that one. I, I wear this one a lot because I get compliments on it all the time. Um, Tommy, age six, said, Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. Amen to that one. And Jessica, age eight, said, You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. And that's one of the sad things facts about the work that we do in true relationships is that we hear the stories of so many people that have not heard I love you that have forgotten what that sounds like or feels like and that's a sad thing and it doesn't have to be that way and I hope that there's no one in this room that has forgotten what it sounds like to hear I love you especially from your spouse And if you haven't heard that in a while, I hope that you'll let them know that and that you'll both get help because there's no reason for that. And I hate those cards that men often buy. I've never bought one, never will. That inside it says, I'm sorry, I haven't said I love you in a while, but I want this card to say it for me. What? What? Excuse me? You should never buy that card. Just make sure you're saying I love you all the time and then get a real card. So, in America today, um, according to a secular poll that was taken, they interviewed people and 93% of those people that were interviewed said that a stable marriage for a lifetime, okay, get that, a stable marriage for a lifetime was very important to them. And so as you look across the landscape of the United States, you see people losing hope in marriage, but understand this, people haven't lost the dream. They've lost the hope, but they haven't lost the dream of marriage, it's interesting, those, of those 93% of people that said marriage was very important to them, when they were asked this question, do you believe you can really have a stable marriage for a lifetime, less than 50%, that's interesting statistic, less than 50%, which is um, kind of indicative of where we're at in how many marriages succeed. I, I wonder how much it's tied to whether or not you even believe it's possible. Less than 50% of those same people believe that it's still possible today. People have a dream of a good marriage. They've just lost the hope. And that's what True Relationships is here for. It is to restore the hope that it is possible. There is a perfect plan for marriage. Ephesians 5. Read it with me if you would. It'll be on the screen behind me and um, you're you're somewhat familiar, but I want to point out some important things as we just read through it quickly. Um, Ephesians 5, I believe, is one of the most revealing passages in the entire Bible regarding marriage. I also believe that it's the most disliked and maybe more importantly misunderstood scriptures in the entire Bible. But until we accept Understand and adopt this plan for marriage. Quite honestly, marriage will never work for us or anyone else. The dream that we have will only come true if we apply God's Word. So let's, let's listen to what it says. First thing I want you to underline, if you have your Bible with you to do so, is the first four words of this passage in verse 21. Submit to one another. This is not about a woman losing her voice, losing her purpose, being a doormat, serving and never getting anything in return. That is not what this passage is about. It's not about a man having strength or authority over you. It is about equal submission, one to the other. One is not better than the other. There is a plan God has established for a reason, and it's not to put anybody down or use anybody inappropriately, period. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, listen to this. This is pretty heavy duty. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, that's, that's pretty significant. I mean, you do realize that Jesus died for the church? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to minimize what you've been called to do, but hey, you know, I, yeah. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her Holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I like that. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I know two things about this passage, and they're not necessarily profound. I like simple things. Simple things work for me. Not that I'm against complex or complicated, but simple is good. And here's two simple things I know about this passage. Everyone loves what it says about their spouse. Yeah. And they really don't like what it says about them. Um, the other thing is that uh, we are all afraid to be the first one to act on it. We're like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll wait for him. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's going to happen, he's going to start it. I'm not going to start it. I mean, after all, I mean, I've been doing this long enough. Okay, you know, that's that's kind of the way we react. You know, I think maybe a woman would be reading this or hearing this, and maybe you're listening to this this morning, and you're hearing things like, woman, submit as to the Lord, and... Maybe the natural reasoning of a woman is something like this. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, I would submit to him if he acted like the Lord. But what you don't understand is that my husband is demon-possessed. I I, I mean, I've calculated his name, and I'm pretty sure it's 666. I mean, for all I know, this guy could be the Antichrist. If he acted like the Lord, yeah, sure, I'd treat him like the Lord. Well, a man is reading this, and he's hearing about sacrificing for her, laying down his life for her, and he's hearing something like this, perhaps. (laughs) With this woman's attitude like that, I am going to be cleaning house all night while she sits in the tub drinking chamomile tea. This woman is going to rule over me the rest of my life, and I am just not going to let that happen. Here's what I want to tell you about marriage today. Marriage still works, but it only works God's way. Everybody say that with me, okay? I want, you to, I want you to verbalize that. Marriage still works, but it only works God's way. Now, the world doesn't agree with that. They don't get that or understand that. They think that's just religiosity. But the bottom line is we know God created, designed, engineered, not only us individually as men and women, but he also designed and engineered this institution called marriage. In fact, he associates himself with it in the Godhead that marriage symbolizes that oneness, that unity, that perfection, and he wants us to be able to enjoy that. Now, now that's profound to me, and I want to get as much of that on this planet as I can get. Now, I know it's never going to be perfect, and I'm never going to have it like heaven, but I, like I told the people this weekend, I can have a slice of heaven here on earth. In my marriage with Linda, I get to enjoy And I get to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in ways that nothing else on this planet will afford me. Nothing. And I know there are some of you who are thinking, well, my goodness, I'm not tasting that. (laughs) So are you serious, Tim? You're telling me that I can really taste the goodness of the Lord in my marriage? Uh, I want that, but I don't have that. Okay, I get it. So what are you going to do about it? You're just going to change your restaurant, try somebody else, or are you going to go to the person that designed it, created it, and makes it, and then let him show you how to fix it? That's what I would do. Just saying. We go back to God's way, and it works, okay? I'm looking at the clock. I'm realizing that there's so much I would love to say about this passage, about this whole idea, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make it as simple as I can again, and I'm just gonna focus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna narrow it down, I'm gonna boil it down to one single truth that I want you to know today. I want you to take away one thing, and it's this. Ephesians 5 disables your sin nature. Ephesians 5 disables our sin nature and keeps it from destroying our marriage. As you know from God's word, we are born with a sin nature. Okay? You, you all know that, right? We're, we're fallen creatures. Your sin nature cannot be married to anyone successfully. So, changing partners is not going to solve anything. You're just gonna have a new set of problems. And I've, I've, I've worked with too many people that have been married multiple times, and here's what happens. They either keep doing that, keep divorcing and remarrying, or they get to a point, usually two or three in, and they realize, I'm going to have to make one of these work. No, I'm, I'm serious. I'm telling you the truth. I'm going to have to make one of these work. So then they finally, they, then they get counseling. Then they say, this is the one that I need to make happen. So they figure it out. there. Well, I'd never say this to any of them, but I'd like to say it. You could have done that on number one. I know that's a little bit, okay, I'm exaggerating. I, I, I hyperbolize this, okay? And I know that can make some people feel badly, okay? Like, But you don't know my situation. You're right, I don't know your situation. And again, when I say that that I know there's abuse and different things that are unacceptable and I don't want anyone to stay in a situation where they're harmed or could potentially be harmed, but I'm talking in generalities. Generally speaking, marriage can be saved. Generally speaking, marriages can be restored. Generally speaking, hearts can be changed unless you choose to be rebellious and just say, I want to do what I want to do. I deserve to be happy. Well, good luck with that. Because my experience shows that that's a very fleeting thing, and it doesn't happen the way you might think it does. And so you're better off staying with somebody that you've got some history with and figure out what's wrong with your heart and what's wrong with theirs, and then go from there. And obviously I'm a proponent of that choice. Just saying. Um, So, sin nature. It can't be married to anyone. No one, successfully. If your sin nature is in control, you're in trouble. So here's what I would like to identify a few things that are associated with the sin nature. Your sin nature is selfish. We talked this weekend about... Uh, escaping the island of me the idea of self-centeredness that we all have in our hearts that are hurting that is hurting our marriage. So our sin nature is selfish, short-tempered, moody, dominant, manipulative and you'll notice in your notes I just put dot 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 to be continued, you know, I mean, I could, I could give you a lot more, but I think you get the point, all right? Your sin nature is going to cause trouble. So no one can have their sin nature married to somebody, and it's not going to cause problems. So what do we have to do? We have to disarm the sin nature. And here's the truth. Ephesians 5 is designed by God to disarm the sin nature in both of us that destroys our relationship. And there's a reason that the, uh, the prescription, if you will, the roles that are given in Ephesians 5 are different for men and women. Why did God say women do this, men do that? Because God designed each of us and he knows what we need to have happen to our hearts to disable the sin nature that could ultimately destroy the intimacy of marriage and relationship. And so, When I I talk about, so let me start with the women, not not for any particular reason, but let me just start with submission. Here's what I want you to understand about submission, ladies. I believe that as a result of what was going on in the garden and what started with our forefather and mother, Adam and Eve, women do have a different sin nature than men. And their sin nature is what Lynn and I have come to identify as a prideful independence. I know that stings. Um, it's always very quiet in the house, after I say that one. It's like I don't know if it's the women or the men who are saying, "What in the world is he saying? Does he know what he's saying?" Yeah, I I do, actually. Um, And I'm not saying it to hurt anybody or to just be, uh, you know, alarming. I want it to be revelational for you. I want you to understand what's going on here and where it started. Here's where it started. Eve ate the fruit without ever consulting, without ever talking to God or her husband. Her husband... Now get this, her husband literally told her directly from God what God said about that fruit, and she sat there and consulted, consorted with the devil who was telling her the exact opposite of what God told her and them through her husband. So she's hearing this statement that's the opposite of everything she's been told and she decides that this sounds good to her. This is not a problem. I think this guy, whatever you want to call him, this snake is right. I think that uh, it's not as big a deal as old Adam is making it out to be and this looks good, it sounds good, I don't see what harm it can do. So without ever talking to her husband, without ever talking to God, she makes a decision. And so that's why I believe that God comes to women and says, that is your sin nature. And I have a way to disable it. I am going to put on you, ladies, I, God says, I, and this is my language, this, is not, this, this statement is not necessarily one that is verbatim. In scripture, it is, it is something that I have drawn from it as an understanding of what was going on in, in the Scripture. So God says, I'm going to disable that sin nature, and I'm going to do that by putting an extra layer of authority on you. And that will disable this tendency that you have to be independent, to be on your own. So this extra layer of authority, ladies, is not because you're not as intelligent or as respected or as loved. It's because you have the tendency to be independent, to make decisions without consulting your husband because you think he has absolutely nothing to tell you. And you would rather do what you want to do and ask forgiveness later. So then God comes to men. Men, I need you to hear me this morning, and I need you to understand what it is that I'm trying to get across to you. Again, a man's sin nature is is different than a woman, obviously. His sin nature is what Lynn and I have come to identify as a passive insensitivity. Adam was commanded by God to take dominion over the earth to rule and subdue it. Now understand that in the original language, in the Hebrew, those words of subdue and rule, those were very violent, very militant terms, very masculine, very strong, very protective. So God designed Adam to be that person that would subdue, not to rule over his wife, but to protect her from the evil that potentially could come. So Adam is designed, literally engineered to do that. And yet here his wife is in mortal danger. How how many of you believe that Adam was there when this happened? How many of you believe that he was there? Like that he was in earshot or that he uh, he saw what was taking place? How many of you believe that Adam was aware, was there? Okay, well, all right, let me just, you can look it up now or later, but uh, Genesis 3-2, uh, here's what it says, and Adam was there. <laughs> I, I, you know, that, that doesn't need any interpretation for me. Adam was there, and, if, and being that Adam was there, what does that mean for us as men, What does that tell us about what was going on in Adam's heart? His wife was in mortal danger. This serpent is telling his wife the exact opposite of what God Almighty told him and gave him the authority to do whatever it took to never let anything like that enter the the garden. And see, Adam sat there on his rock and did nothing. Oh, see how this goes. I'm not going to go into that chaos unless I have to. I no mean, seriously, I mean, I know I'm kind of, you know, m- making it a, l- a little bit of a story, but it's more than a story. Okay, so what should Adam have done? And how much different would things have been if he had done it differently? Here's what I believe with all of my heart that Adam was supposed to do in that moment. And I believe that it's based on valid biblical understanding. I believe that Adam was supposed to go over to that serpent, and he was to say, sir, uh, I, I overheard you telling my wife that it was okay for us to eat the fruit of this tree. And Satan in his pride would say, oh, yeah, God didn't mean that. He, didn't want, he just doesn't want you to be like him. Yeah, no big deal. And I think that Adam should have just calmly, collectively looked at that serpent and said, well, just so you know, I mean, I recognize that this is a democratic free garden. And you can think what you want, but because you think that, here's what you get. <laughs> Gone. And, and, and what would have happened? Well, you might say, Tim, you're, you're making up your own story here. That's just a fairy tale. What are you doing? This is not biblical. Okay, well, hold on. Because it is said in the Old Testament there, that there was a prophet who proclaimed that when the Messiah... Jesus would come that he would do this. Listen up. He would crush the head of the serpent and and do what? Bruise his heel. That's, That's probably all that would have happened to Adam. He would have bruised his heel. How many times have you men avoided something that was critical because you didn't know what it was going to cost you? And you avoided a decision or you avoided an action because, well, that's just going to be a little bit more than I want to take on right now. And all you would have done was maybe get a little bruise and it cost your family dearly. I'll tell you, all I want to say about that is this. Ladies and gentlemen, men and women, we've got to stop acting like Adam and Eve and start acting more like Jesus. Because we have also been given authority. We have also been called to subdue and rule and love and keep the garden as God. Nothing should ever enter your home. Nothing should be allowed to just trapes in to your relationship. And part of what I'm talking about is attitude, is language, is anger, is anger. Drugs, you name it. It's not allowed in your garden. And you are to stop it in its tracks. That's what God has called us to do. I believe that with all my heart. So God comes to us men and says, I have an answer to that laziness in you. I know, that stings too, doesn't it, guys? You know, laziness, really? Yeah, yeah. Laziness. He says, I'm going to put an extra layer of responsibility on you. He comes to women, says, I'm going to put an extra layer of authority over you to protect your heart and to uh, disable your sin nature. And he says to men, I'm going to put an extra layer of responsibility on you. Then that's going to keep your eyes and ears open. That's going to keep your heart soft. And you're not going to let anything undo what God has started. And so here's what I have come to understand. If we accept the roles that we have in Ephesians 5, it simply disables our sin nature. If I will sacrificially love Linda the way God has told me to, to nourish her, to cherish her, to lay my life down for her, I will never Be passively insensitive again. If Linda will love me, honor me, submit to me as she would to the Lord, though we are equals, it disables her sin nature. And I just want to remind you that your sin nature is not going to be married successfully to anyone. It has to be crucified and here's what I've come to believe. The roles, in, the, the prescription, I kind of like that idea better, the prescription in Ephesians 5 does just that. So listen to these final things that I would like to just bring to your attention. Two simple things. The best way to change your spouse is to change yourself. I'll say it again. The best way to change your spouse is to change yourself. And the best, the best person, the, the hero, the, 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 the best one is going to be the first one to act on it. I, 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 I've said that so many times, and I've, I, there's something about it that just doesn't sit right with me. The best one? So please understand what I mean when I say the best one. It's the only phrase I could come up with that lets you understand that somebody has to start. You've got to stop being afraid. And generally, I call men to that. But this is so critical, so serious, I can't just leave it to one of you. I want it to be on both of you. Step up. Do what needs to be done. Figure it out. Be honest. Share your heart. Get help. Do what you got to do. And that's what brings transformational change. You take responsibility for your behavior and you do the right thing. That is what changes marriages. Close your eyes with me as we just turn our hearts to the Lord and ask Him to speak to us. And I'd like Him to speak to you from this final Verse In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says this, You, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. I believe it's time for all of us to come to God today and say something like this. Lord, I want to be attractive to my spouse. I want to meet their needs. I want us to enjoy true intimacy. So I commit to this today. And as I commit to it, I also want to be the person that you use in my spouse's life to build them up, and take them to their highest potential. I want to be the vessel you use to bring them to that place that you created them in their mother's womb to become. Lord, I commit to this. I submit to you, and we submit to each other so that you can disable the sin nature that would have a tendency to destroy our intimacy with each other, that would tend to pull us apart instead of together. We ask that you would destroy those things that are at work against us, and that we would enjoy what you designed marriage to be. May it be so, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.